Good morning. I'm John Smoley, a city planner with the city of Minneapolis. On behalf of myself and my fellow presenters, I want to thank you all for coming out to our session this morning on bringing historic preservation to your community. Can everyone hear me okay? All right. We are. This is uh, being recorded, actually, for our live album uh, available in the future here. Um, so I want to begin by thanking 3M for its support of the conference's preservation track. 3M, headquartered in St. Paul, has operations in more than 65 countries, produces more than 55,000 products, and is a worldwide leader in innovation. Uh, I should also note that in addition to being a planner, I'm a former museum professional. And once I got into preservation, I'd occasionally bump into old colleagues who would be interested and say things like, well, you know, we should really have a preservation program in our community sometime. But they weren't always exactly sure how to begin, uh, where to start, uh, who to talk to first. And so uh, we thought we'd put together sort of a basic how-to session at this terrific conference that attracts so many like-minded individuals focused upon history in such a wide variety of professions. We have a terrific panel for you. You'll hear from a historian, an archaeologist, an architect, and a city planner. We'll describe our fields and how they can help you bring historic preservation to your community. In addition to myself, you'll be hearing from Sarah Beimers, a historian who currently supervises the Government Programs and Compliance Unit with the Minnesota State Historic Preservation Office. Dr. Michelle Terrell, at the end of the table, is a trained anthropologist. Her firm, Two Pines Resources, Resource Group, specializes in archaeological and historical investigations. And closest to me, Angela Wolf Scott, is an architect specialized in historic preservation at McDonald and Mac Architects in Minneapolis. We're reserving a good amount of time at the end of our presentation for your questions. And I want to begin by just going over a few terms that you're going to hear throughout the presentation. We use the terms historic preservation, heritage preservation, and cultural resource management synonymously. What we're talking about is the protection of spaces significant to a community's shared heritage. By protection, we mean regulating changes too. Ideally, historic buildings retain their integrity. Historic properties retain their integrity, defined as their ability to communicate their historical significance by not being changed too much. We protect, um, we, uh, protect spaces. Uh, specifically, um, well, what we're trying to avoid is um, people's focus occasionally on objects. Uh, objects taken out of context, that's really the purview of museums. That's a very important mission, but that's not the mission of historic preservation. And we're uh, protecting significant spaces, not just important spaces, not just superlatives like the oldest or the tallest. We're looking for spaces that are historically significant within the context of your city, state, or nation, uh, and properties that retain their ability to communicate their historical significance, that integrity. We're focused on shared heritage, not just what I think is important or what you think is significant, but what an entire community or state or nation thinks is important to them. We'll discuss some mandatory and non-mandatory historic preservation. Interestingly, often the strongest protections for historic preservation occur at the local level. Properties listed in the National Register of Historic Preservation don't necessarily have to be preserved. In fact, they can be altered and even demolished pretty radically unless other federal laws, which you'll hear about uh, in brief this morning, um, other federal laws do require their preservation. Just because we call it historic preservation doesn't mean we're interested or disinterested in pre, so-called prehistoric 
buildings, structures, objects, sites, and districts. Historic preservation is very much focused on preserving both pre- and post-contact history. Let's get started um, with uh, getting you some uh, practical advice from an architect. Uh, arguably, the preservation practitioner you're most likely to meet in your community. I think it's safe to say that there are probably more architects in our country than historians, planners, and archaeologists combined. Angela? Thanks, John. You can find us all over the place. <laughs> um, all right. As... Um, as John mentioned, my name is Angela Wolf-Scott. I work for McDonald and Mac Architects in Minneapolis, and we are focused almost exclusively on historic preservation. I'm going to give you some basic information to introduce our topic, and this is going to be focused primarily on buildings. Uh, since we are at a conference about history, I'm going to start with the history of historic preservation. So the preservation movement began in the United States in 1853 when a group of private citizens banded together to save Mount Vernon. The movement really took hold with the National Preservation Act of 1966, and that act organized historic preservation within the federal government as a part of the National Park Service under the Secretary of the Interior. It has its own criteria and processes for designating properties as historic and for certifying local governments to designate historic properties on the local level. It also has guidelines and standards by which all historic projects are, all historic preservation projects are measured. Now, the National Register of Historic Places is the official list of the nation's historic places worthy of preservation. Um, it's authorized by the Preservation Act of 1966, and the National Park Service's National Register of Historic Places is part of a national program to coordinate and support private and public efforts to identify, evaluate, and protect America's historic and archaeological resources. There are currently about 8,000 properties in Minnesota listed on the National Register, either individually or as a contributing resource to a historic district. Now, National Historic Landmarks are kind of one step above the National Register, and those are nationally significant historic places also designated by the Secretary of the Interior because they possess exceptional value or quality in illustrating or interpreting the heritage of the United States. Today, there are just over 2,500 historic places that bear this designation, and 25 of which are in Minnesota. Now, the historic designation does have an impact on buildings and how they're treated in the eyes of building codes. Each code has a precise definition for what can be considered a historic building, um, but they're typically really pretty close to the same definition. Um, the International Existing Building Code, which is a pretty widely used code for historic and existing buildings, defines a historic building as any building or structure that is listed on the National Register um, is designated as a historic property under local or state designation, is certified as a contributing resource within a National Register District or locally designated historic district, or with an opinion or certification that the property is eligible to be listed on the National Register. Um, when, when classified as a historic building, a separate set of code requirements are enforced, and this is um, 
a, a nice way for historic properties to be recognized for their historic materials and their inherent um, life safety um, components. And that helps to preserve kind of our heritage while still maintaining a, an adequate level of life safety within those buildings. Now, there are, hang on, no cursor. <laughs> Help. <laughs> Does that do it? No. Yeah. All right. That's okay. Nah. Well, because that's oh, not no, going to do it over there. Okay. That's okay. It's all right. Um, there are many benefits to historic preservation. And while some of these benefits are intangible, like the good feeling you get from saving a historic building, um, or the importance of being able to share the history of a community um, with future generations, the tangible or measurable benefits are often the most critical components to use while consensus building within your community. And some of these measurable benefits include um, economic development, job creation, and sustainability. Retaining and restoring historic fabric of a community improves economic development. The Main Streets program, which will be covered in another session at this conference, um, began as a program to save historic structures. And the side effect of the program was that these towns that participated found that these main streets became economically stronger um, and more stable. And now the program is promoted for both the ability to preserve historic buildings and for economic development. And this is just one example of a very organized, far-reaching program, but this result can occur on a small-scale effort as well. Um, another um, great thing to bring up when you're consensus building to um, save some properties in your community is economic activity and job creation. Um, it's very hard to measure job creation for historic preservation or construction projects. Um, but here in the state of Minnesota, we have a state historic tax credit. And part of that um, tax credit to kind of reinforce the good that it has done um, is that it, they require um, reporting new jobs. And so we do have a statistic that relates to that. And those projects are a pretty good benchmark for preservation projects in general. So for every $1 spent... Um, on the preservation projects from the state tax credits, $8.68 of economic activity was generated, which is pretty amazing. And that is much higher than new construction economic or construction activity, and for good reason. Um, preservation projects are very labor intensive, using fewer and more local traditional building materials. And of course, sustainability. Historic preservation and sustainability really go hand in hand, and there's a, a lot of good reasons why. This is a chart that shows building energy use by vintage, and um, you can see the energy use along the um, left-hand side and then across the bottom are buildings um, grouped by era of construction. Buildings constructed before 1920 consume less energy than any other era since. Um, with the 1920 to 1945 time period in close second. 
There are very good reasons why the buildings constructed during this time period either had no choice but to be off the grid or only had the option of new or expensive energy sources. They're constructed to respond to their local climate in passive ways and were made from local materials by local craftsmen. Even today, we benefit from the sustainability of these historic structures. The Secretary of the Interior um, outlines four treatments for historic buildings, and each treatment is a way of categorizing or describing the scope and philosophy of a project. These definitions are industry-wide and help those in the field um, talk to each other in a very precise way. And the four treatments are preservation, rehabilitation, restoration, and reconstruction. And I'll go through some examples of each one. Preservation is the most minimal treatment of the four, and basically you can think of it as stabilization. These images are of a preservation project in New Ulm, um, preserving the Defenders State Monument. And over the years, this 1891 monument started to sag and creep, which is a movement really common in zinc structures, but is catastrophic if left untreated. Um, the monument was disassembled, the zinc was conserved, and the monument was reassembled over a new steel armature, which was designed to relieve the load of each individual section from the section below it and to stabilize the structure. Rehabilitation. This treatment is one that um, helps to have a historic building adopt a new or modern use. And you aren't necessarily trying to make time stand still with a building with a treatment like this. Um, and it's one that I use frequently because it allows a building to remain vital in today's society and allows a building to change with the times to a certain extent. These images are of the Gale Mansion, which is part of the Washburn Fair Oaks Historic District in Minneapolis. The building is owned by the American Association for University Women and is um, used both for a thriving catering and events business and also for their own headquarters for educational programs. The demands of the building exceeded their uses, and we were hired to fit their modern needs into this historic building. And we did this in several ways um, without expanding the footprint of the building. And the only addition to the building is shown here um, to the house the new elevator outside the walls of the historic mansion, but inside the walls of the 1962 addition, with the exception of the third floor. Um, so here, this is the 1962 edition, which goes out this way a little bit. Um, and we, this is um, inside the third floor before. And you can see these stone arches and a little open air balcony beyond. And we put in one new exterior wall and put the elevator shaft where that open air balcony had been and created... Um, a fully accessible building as a result. Restoration. This treatment turns back time. A building undergoing restoration is one where the owner wants to portray a specific time period of the building's life. Sometimes this means removing later additions or adding missing additions. In order to follow this treatment, research into the building's history is necessary in order to determine the most significant period to restore the building to. Christchurch Lutheran is a national landmark designed by Alil and Aero Saarinen. And after 60 years, this modern building was suffering from rusting, reinforcing, and spalling brick, and um, as well as 
several other things. We investigated the causes of the deterioration and put together a restoration project that mitigated those causes and restored the exterior of the building. Um, and this is showing the work at the bell tower um, kind of in progress before and in progress. Reconstruction. Reconstruction is a difficult treatment because it generally is building a new building to create a building that no longer exists. Um, but there typically isn't enough evidence of a building to recreate it in whole. So there's frequently a lot of conjecture involved with reconstruction and that sometimes portrays a false sense of history. It is infrequently used for an entire building but commonly used in conjunction with other treatments to recreate a detail of a building. Um, in this case, the original structure was the template for the reconstruction. This is the American Swedish Institute in South Minneapolis. And when posed with restoring the solarium, we found the existing materials so far deteriorated that there is no practical way of saving them. After thoroughly measuring and documenting the entire solarium, it was rebuilt exactly as it was historically. Within each of the four treatments, there are 10 standards, and these are the guidelines by which the projects falling within that category are measured and the parameters that I design within. Um, these are all available on the National Parks website. I just want to call your attention to how these standards all focus on using a light touch when working with historically designated buildings. And these themes are very sustainable practices. The basic idea is to keep it, fix it, and make it relevant. Now, Sarah is going to speak and give you some more detailed information regarding part of the regulatory side of historic preservation. I don't know how to, you could. Oh, yeah. there we go. Okay. Is that back now? No. No? Okay. Just give us one second here to deal with a little technical difficulty. So you may have to move around. Three of us here. <laughs> How many preservation professionals does it take I'll to set up a <laughs> computer presentation? No pressure. Should be button. Where's it? Oh, I can leave it. You can around this. A slideshow from beginning. Yep, right there. Angie's a little taller than I am. Thank you, Angie. Can everyone hear me? I'll turn this a little. Hello, again, my name is Sarah Beimers, and I am the compliance uh, manager of the compliance, Review and Compliance Unit at the State Historic Preservation Office. In the next 12 minutes or so, I'm gonna give you a whirlwind um, overview of the Federal Preservation Program, ending with a focus on the Section 106 Federal Review process you may have heard of. And although this will primarily be uh, preservation from 30,000 feet, I hope it'll provide some insight into the federal program which we work every day and how you can become involved on a local level. As, as Angie mentioned, and I think John both mentioned, the National Historic Preservation Act was passed in 1966 primarily as a response to collateral damage um, resulting from urban renewal projects and the building of the interstate highway system. The act established the State Historic Preservation Offices. It instructs federal agencies to be responsible stewards of the properties that they own. It created the National Register of Historic Places to identify significant historic and archeological properties. Uh, 
and it established the law which requires federal review of projects to ensure that impacts to historic properties are taken into account. The Act of 66 established the State Historic Preservation Offices, or SHPOs, as I will refer to them. Some other states call them SHPOs. I've heard, um, yeah, SHPO, either SHPO or SHPO. I, I'll say SHPO. There is a SHPO in each of the 50 states, Washington, D.C., eight U.S. territories, and there are Tribal Historic Preservation Offices, or TIPOs, in our American Indian communities. The State Historic Preservation Officer is appointed by each state's governor. In Minnesota, Stephen Elliott, who is also our executive director of our historical society, is the State Historic Preservation Officer. The Act sets minimum program requirements that all SHPOs working under the National Park Service must meet and are listed here. But we'll focus on the two which are highlighted, and those are our assistance with local units of government to establish historic preservation programs and consulting with federal agencies regarding review of federal undertakings. Local preservation programs. In Minnesota, heritage preservation commissions were created under state enabling legislation from 1971. In most communities, the members of the HPC are appointed by the mayor and city council through a typical commission process, application process. In Minnesota, also state statutes require at least one member of the HPC to be a representative from the county or local historical society. To take the local preservation commission to the next level, the National Park Service established the CLG program, or Certified Local Government Program, in 1980 as a recognition of the importance of historic preservation at the grassroots level. A local government seeking certification must meet certain program standards, and these communities work with the State Historic Preservation Office for certification. And these include adoption and enforcement of local legislation and designation and protection of historic properties. They must establish a qualified commission. And these, if they have the certification, they're eligible for federal grants through our office. In Minnesota, we currently have 56 Heritage Preservation Commissions, 42 of which are certified local governments. So when it comes to federal project review under Section 106, which I'll delve into next, we consider the HPCs and CLGs really our field chippos, so to speak, our local partners in the federal preservation program, and we often have to remind federal agencies that they need to talk to these local partners because they are the ones who know their communities best and the historic resources. And if we get to the point of mitigation, they will be able to assist us with the best, most useful forms of mitigation for those communities. So Section 106 requires federal agencies to take into account the effects of their undertakings on historic properties. The tiny print on the left is the actual language of Section 106 from the Act I've highlighted on the right the important terms of the law, which I'll define soon. But it's most important to know that Section 106 encourages but does not mandate preservation. We're not, we're not the preservation police, as some people think we are. Many times there may be no other way for a much-needed project to proceed without harming historic properties. Section 106 is important that it requires federal agencies to take responsibility for any consequences that projects they carry out, approve, fund, or, or fund may have on historic properties and to be publicly accountable for these decisions. 
So the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation was also established with the National Historic Preservation Act. It issues regulations to implement Section 106. It's an independent federal agency. For the first few years after the act was passed, there were no regulations, so I'm not really sure what, how the project reviews were done. I wasn't here then. The first version of the regulations were issued in 1979 and then most recently revised in 2004, and that's the version we use today. I have an image on the left, which is the first of 16 pages of regulations. If you'd like to have a copy of your own for your own enjoyment, you can find it on the Advisory Council's website, which I've put the URL up there. The Advisory Council's website is also very helpful for, um, they have a lot of information on case studies across the country, a lot of uh, white paper advice that they give to federal agencies and local communities, and they produce the Citizen's Guide to Section 106 Review, which is pictured on the lower right as a very helpful little pamphlet. So back to definitions. The federal agency, the agency is a federal agency which may either fund, license, or permit a federal project. For example, Federal Highway Administration funds highway projects. The Forest Service owns forest lands. Or the Federal Communications Commission, which licenses cell tower installations all over the state. The undertaking is the actual project funded by the federal agency, licensed or permitted. Now this has to be the type of activity that has the potential to cause effects to historic property. So as one consultant I heard say, federal bureaucrats in DC chewing on pencils doesn't count as an undertaking. It needs to actually be a sort of a physical project. So a lot of social service projects don't count. An effect is an alteration to the characteristics of the historic property which qualify it for listing in the National Register, and I will talk about the National Register next. These effects may either be direct or indirect effects. And then this goes along with the de definition of the area of potential effect, which is a geographic area within which a project may affect historic properties. Of course, this is very scalable to the size of the project, a small housing rehab project funded by the Housing and Urban Development Department may just, the APE is just the physical property, but a large linear highway project may have a very wide and long area of potential effect. For historic property, again, I'll explain what this means on the next slide. And consultation is the process of seeking, discussing, and considering the views and reaching agreement under the Section 106 process with the Section 106 participants, which are also known as consulting properties. I mean, consulting parties. I'm getting my P's mixed up. Back to historic property. Though Angie did delve into the National Register a little bit, um, again, this is a prehistoric or historic site, district, building, or structure either listed or determined eligible for listing on the National Register is a historic property under Section 106. So again, it doesn't need to be listed. It can be determined eligible. In short, a prop property must have national, regional, or local significance, be of a certain age, and have integrity to be listed on or eligible for listing on the National Register. So I have some examples of significant properties in four of the major criteria that the National Register uses. The first, uh, important historic events, such as Paul and Babe as promoters of historic tourism in northern Minnesota. The lives of people who were historically important, such as businessman George Draper Dayton's house in Worthington in southwestern Minnesota. 
a distinctive design either in architecture or engineering, such as the pipestone water tower, which is an, a unique early example of concrete slip form construction, or has the potential to yield important information through archaeological investigations, such as Grand Mound on the Rainy River in Kuchiching County. A property must be significant in at least one of these criteria, and many are significant in more than one. It must also be at least 50 years old, though there are some exceptions, and must have the ability to convey its significance based on retained features of integrity, and we call these the seven sins of integrity. Location, design, setting, materials, workmanship, feeling, and association. So they need to retain the majority of those pieces of integrity to be eligible. So here is what, this is what happens when you Google Section 106 flowchart, but I'm not gonna use this one because it's very complicated. This is a much better one, which I actually have on my bulletin board and I use all the time. The, I especially like this one because it, it narrows it down to four primary steps that the federal agency takes in the Section 106 process and that consultation with consulting parties, including the State Historic Preservation Office, local HPCs, and the public, happens at each of the four steps. So primarily, we have initiation of the process, which doesn't really involve much. It's just sort of the, the federal agency saying, we're going to do this project. Typically, they, roll, they roll, may roll a couple steps into each consultation. So the plan to involve the public is important for larger projects as well as smaller projects. The next step is really the, the critical step that the federal agency takes to identify historic properties. They identify the area of potential effect, they define and document that, and they identify and evaluate any historic properties within the area of potential effect, and those may be listed or eligible already, or they may do further cultural resources surveys in order to determine that. They may be done at that point if they don't find any historic properties within the area of potential effect, and they would complete consultation with our office, and we would typically concur at that stage. If there are properties and they may be affected, they will assess adverse effects. I'll delve into this a little bit more in my example. The agency may also be done at this step if they determine that their potential may be adverse effects, but they'll alter the project in such a way that they will not adversely be affected. One great example is potentially federal money going to rehabilitation of a building and the building is rehabilitated according to the standards that Angie covered, and therefore it would be a no adverse effect. Sometimes road projects are moved in order to preserve setting of historic properties, and that's also a similar determination. If there are adverse effects and the, it, they cannot be avoided, then we move to dis consultation on minimization or mitigation with the federal agency. And that's basically it. A few thousand times a year we do this in our office. So perhaps the best way to understand this is to give you an example, and I apologize to anyone from Stillwater who's heard this many times before. And I realize this is a really big project, but it has sort of all the pieces that, that are good to cover in how to explain this process. First of all, this is the St. Croix Crossing Project, which is a new bridge being built five miles south of downtown Stillwater. The federal agency is the Federal Highway Administration, though there is a second agency, the Corps of Engineers, because of wetland, well not wetland impacts, river impacts. <laughs> um, 
they defer to the federal agency and they become the, the Federal Highway Administration, becomes the lead federal agency in this case. The Corps of Engineers often does that. They never take the lead. So the undertaking, again, is the construction of the new highway bridge south of downtown Stillwater. For this project, and this is, again, typical for larger projects, there were two areas of potential effect, one for architectural and historic, historic resources on the left, which is kind of hard to see. It's a gray line that sort of encompasses the entire area where the new bridge is and up to Stillwater. It's going to be very visible, so it affects the setting. And then the archaeological resources, which is the very detailed uh, map with the little black squiggly line, and that is areas of direct impacts that will have ground disturbance primarily. So these APEs were determined in, in many, many consultation meetings with local preservation organizations and the public during very many open public meetings. Cultural resources surveys were completed in order to identify and evaluate historic and archaeological resources in these areas. We already knew that there were a few that were listed on the National Register, including downtown Stillwater Commercial Historic District, the Stillwater Lift Bridge, many other individual properties, and then there were some that were evaluated during this process, including the Shoddy Mill, Stillwater Cultural Landscape Historic District, which is a larger landscape, and the South Main Archaeological District, among others. So through project design development, there were adverse effects that were encountered in early project design, but many were avoided through design changes. That left us with adverse effects that we needed to mitigate, and those included demolition or moving of a property from its historic location, change in the property's setting, which contributed to its significance, and introduction of visual, atmospheric, or audible effects to the historic setting. And so consultation, through consultation, mitigation provisions were developed in order to minimize and mitigate. So this consultation resulted in a memorandum of agreement, which was executed in 2006 and is many pages long. In order to minimize additional adverse effects construction, during construction of the new crossing, regular traffic updates are provided to help facilitate access into the downtown district. The Stillwater Lift Bridge will be preserved it will continue to be owned by the State Department of Transportation. It has a management plan that's been established, and it will be converted to bike pedestrian use as part of a larger loop trail that will actually go from the new bridge through Wisconsin to the lift bridge and back again. The memorandum also outlines site-specific mitigation measures, such as moving the shoddy mill in the upper right to a new location. It remained listed on the National Register during this move, so that was... Uh, development of an appropriate site for placement of this that, that met the characteristics of its original site, and public education efforts, with, which, may have been some of the, which may be some of the most important ones. Some are being developed right now, such as interpretive panels for the South Main Archaeological District on the upper left. That's the loop trail will go through there. It's south of downtown. And installations on the new bridge, like the image on the lower left, which you'll be looking up on an... Uh, a nice overlook on the new bridge towards downtown Stillwater and be able to read about the historic lift bridge. There's also going to be completion of a lift bridge history book in cooperation with the Washington County Historical Society and a field guide to historic resources in the city of Stillwater, not your usual walking tour of historic buildings, but interesting things like stairways and gutters, sidewalks, things like that that you don't usually notice.
Oops, I went too far. So although this project is, is a very big project, and most of you won't encounter this, though with our aging infrastructure, I am seeing more bridges being replaced in the state. It, it sort of, you can filter it down to, to your local level because it sort of has examples of all, all the pieces of the Section 106 process. The most important thing to remember is if you learn about proposed projects in your community, which may have federal involvement, and these are typically revealed through open houses, presentations to your city council, or legal notices in the newspaper, feel free to contact our office to find out if we have information on the project. If we don't, we can certainly get information or forward you to the federal agency. A lot of times, if they're in very early planning stages, I know MnDOT does this a lot, they have public meetings, and we, it would be years before we would even see the project. But feel free to contact us, and we can, and if you do, be sure you have information regarding the location, and maybe a description of the project is always helpful, and that way we can search our database for it and try to guide you in the right direction. So next, Michelle, will talk about archaeology on a local level. So thank you. How do we turn X? There we go. I'm Michelle Terrell. I'm uh, the, co the uh, archaeologist on this panel and uh, co-owner of Two Pines Resource Group. As um, with my, my time allotted, what I'd like to do is kind of give you a brief introduction to what an archaeologist does, uh, where you'll find archaeologists in your preservation process, and uh, walk you through a sample project uh, for some, some ideas about how to incorporate archaeology into your community's preservation plan. One of the principal challenges of uh, archaeological resources is that they, they're just not visible. Um, unless we're doing an active excavation where we're finding uh, surfaces like this that you can come visit, they are just not a, on your landscape or radar when you're looking at your community as a whole. On the other hand, archaeology is cool, and everybody likes archaeology, and everybody apparently wanted to be one based on what uh, visitors to my site tell me. Um, but uh, the, the question is, how do, we, how do we build on that enthusiasm for this type of resource and incorporate it into our community? I'm, I'm just going to use this. Yeah, or you can hit these arrows, too, right here. Hit ah. Yeah, then there you go. I see how it works. I don't care. Uh, first, let's pause for a definition, though. Um, what is archaeology? Uh, the thing that you need to take away from this is archaeology is the study of the human past. Uh, we are often confused with geologists who study rocks and paleontologists who study dinosaurs, but archaeologists use artifacts and the remains of past uh, habitations and structures to investigate our human history. And this can include uh, be, a, be a, on the smallest scale of a projectile point, an arrowhead out in the middle of a farmer's field, or the remains of a mining uh, site that may cover several acres. Where will you find archaeologists in the preservation process? Uh, your state historic preservation office has an archaeologist on staff that uh, works with federal programs. 
Every uh, state and territory also has a state archaeologist that oversees archaeological resources in their area. And then you'll also find archaeologists on the staff of federal and state agencies, and I've listed some here on the slide. And then there's private contractors like myself. And we primarily do uh, what is called compliance-driven archaeology. That means we are contacted by a client uh, they, they, that has a project that they want to undertake, and because of a federal, state, or local ordinance, they are required to conduct an archaeological survey as part of their project. And if archaeology is coming to your community, that's most likely how it's going to occur. Uh, it's going to be as part of a project, and uh, we tend to uh, come in, look at that area, do our investigations, maybe find sites, maybe not, uh, collect artifacts, and analyze them, write reports, and then the project proceeds. And uh, the community is largely unaware that archaeology has taken place uh, in their area. So I want to give you an example of a project where uh, this sort of process took place, but it was taken to the next level of actually uh, making this invisible resource visible and incorporating it into their, uh, making it a community asset uh, as part of their preservation plan. So I tried to pick a project that I thought um, you could tool or, or scale to your community. Uh, it could be a project anywhere. Uh, it doesn't really matter where it was. Uh, it's a county park, and the county basically had some, some ideas about what they would like to do to improve their park area. They wanted to construct a picnic shelter. They wanted to improve parking at this particular park, and they wanted to uh, do a couple other amenity issues. They wanted to restore some erosion, uh, improve some trail connections. Uh, and this is the kind of a little sketch of, of what they had, uh, had proposed that they would do. Oh, excuse me. This project in particular was funded through the Minnesota Department of Transportation, which meant that, uh, and it was on public land, so it fell under the purview of the Minnesota Field Archaeology Act, which uh, protects uh, known or suspected archaeological sites on public lands. Uh, from uh, disturbance during uh, projects taken with federal with state funding, and in this case, we did have a known uh, site. The Minnesota Department of Natural Resources, as part of a previous project where they had done uh, some restoration on this dam down here in the lower lower left, uh, they had done a little bit of limited archaeological testing. These three dots represent where they did uh, some uh, archaeological uh, excavation, and then they also found some artifacts on the surface. So there was reason to believe that there was a site here, and this uh, dashed line is sort of what they thought might be the site boundary. So you can see how the county's plans uh, related to that uh, suspected site boundary. When we undertake an archaeological project, we always kind of go through the same steps or phases. Uh, our work begins with a literature search. We gather information on that area, and that gives us a sense of what sort of archaeological resources we might uh, encounter while we're doing our work. And then a phase one survey is an identification survey. Is there anything there? We go out and look for uh, archaeological resources. If we find something, then we'll go to phase two, which uh, phase two is, yeah, there's something there, but is it significant? So we, that's where we use the National Register criteria to decide whether this site actually has historical significance. 
If the site is National Register eligible and the project cannot avoid it, we always recommend avoidance. Um, if, the site, if the site cannot be avoided, then we may go to a phase three, which is a data recovery or mitigation, where we try to gather as much information as possible about that site before it is destroyed. So in this case, there was already sort of a phase one that had been done. We already had a sense that there was uh, an archaeological resource in this area. So we were, we were sort of jumping in at phase two. Yes, there's something here. Is it significant? And what we found was that uh, this site actually had uh, very dense artifact deposits. And not only were there artifacts present, but there were diagnostic artifacts. And diagnostic artifacts are things like these decorated uh, pottery rim sherds and projectile points that help us figure out exactly what time period we're talking about. And that, uh, that makes the site more significant because we can then compare it uh, to other sites from that period and we can learn more about what was happening and what the lifeways were like uh, during that era. In this case, uh, this site dated to what we call in Minnesota the Black Duck <clears throat> or Cathio Complex, which is about 600 to 1100 AD. Although we also found evidence for a slightly earlier occupation and a slightly later occupation. So basically the site was used from about 1000 BC to 1750 AD. The site also had excellent integrity. It had never been plowed, it had never been uh, disturbed by construction or a farmstead or the sort of things that we see at other sites. Um, and uh, it had uh, excellent, uh, so nothing, nothing had been disturbed or moved. So in this case, you're looking at uh, the most complete black duck uh, pot that I've ever encountered. It's complete from an archaeological standpoint in that the pieces were all there. Uh, um, and what you see there is the rim of the vessel, and at the top is a uh, fish bone that was in the bottom of this pot when it was left there on the ground and eventually broke over time. And uh, we were actually able to identify this, this bone within this pot as being northern or muscalinge and white sucker, which are uh, still in the lake and river of that area. And you can see that we also had uh, the bone uh, fishing spear points were preserved at this site as well. So we could tell that this was a seasonal fishing camp, and it just had excellent integrity and was nationally register eligible. So what does that mean for the, this park plan? Well, this is um, what we ended up with for a site boundary, the red line. The uh, black dots are where we found um, artifacts. Uh, white dots mean we didn't find anything in those areas. And so what the county decided to do is uh, avoid the densest portions of the site by pulling that parking lot back further to the east outside of the site boundary. And they also, uh, when they constructed their picnic shelter, they selected a portion of the site where there wasn't a lot of archaeological material, and they constructed the picnic shelter on slab, uh, uh, using an at-grade slab, so they didn't have to dig down and disturb uh, the archaeological deposits. They also uh, closed uh, one of the problems with this site. Uh, it, it, other, you know, it hadn't been disturbed a lot, but there was erosion issues, and there was also the fact that people were using it, had basically a vehicle turnaround in the middle of the, the site, and that had eroded over time. And so they closed that area to vehicle traffic, seeded that area again to pro prohibit the uh, continuing erosion, and basically now just created a walking path in that area instead of vehicle traffic. Now the project could have stopped there. That's kind of where a lot of our projects stop. We, we go in, the project, you know, we look at the archaeological resources and the project proceeds. But in this case, the county was really excited about what we had found and they wanted to share that. And they also wanted to protect that site uh, long term. 
So they uh, got in what we call a legacy grant in Minnesota, uh, the Clean Water Land and Legacy Amendment. I put the URL on this website if you want, on the website URL if you want to learn more about uh, the amendment and how it came about. But they got a grant uh, through the Minnesota Historical Society to do two things, a National Register nomination. They wanted to list the site on the National Register, and they also wanted to interpret the site. And so we worked with the county to develop uh, two uh, interpretive signs on, on the, uh, on the, in the site area. The first of these talks about the pottery. It talks about the pottery that uh, exists in this portion of, of Minnesota and how uh, archaeologists use that information that's contained in the, in the pottery and its decoration to determine what, what time period the pot is from and uh, how the pots were constructed and how they changed over time. The uh, second sign that we helped them to develop was about uh, Native American fishing in this particular area, uh, talking about the types of uh, bone that we found, the fishing tools, the fishing spear points. And, um, and this, uh, one of the things about archaeology, and one of the reasons I, th I think it's important to include it in your community's preservation plan, is it provides a tangible connection with the past. In this case, I was working at the site and uh, in my little unit digging, and this guy walks by me down to the river, like he sees archaeologists working in his park every day. And he walks down, he looks in the river, and he comes back, and as he's walking by me, he said, I was just checking to see if the fish were running. So the same use, the same uh, use of this site was, had been occurring for 1,000-plus years. And now there's a sign here to sort of draw attention to the fact that we're using these resources in the same way, we're using these, um, these locations in the same way. One of the ways um, that archaeology can be incorporated into your community uh, preservation is it can be used to identify and um, interpret those locations that are important to your community's development and character. Uh, it's a good way of finding and locating initial homesteads and settlements, commercial developments, those early, those early industries that uh, contributed to your town's location uh, and setting and its current character. For example, this, I worked on the Stillwater Lift Bridge project that uh, Sarah discussed and uh, logging and lumber milling was important in Stillwater's history and we uh, documented uh, the remains of the uh, couple sawmills in that area as well as the workers housing to, and that's part of the archaeological district that she mentioned. I encourage you um, if, you're, if you're interested in uh, incorporating archaeology further into your, your community's preservation that you contact the State Historic Preservation Archaeologist, you contact the uh, state archaeologists and ask them, uh, are there significant archaeological resources that have been identified in our area or potential archaeological resources that we should be aware of as we uh, develop our preservation plans? And also ask them, um, do you know if any archaeologists have been working in our area recently? And invite those uh, archaeologists to come and give talks at your local historical society or whatever, and in that way make this uh, invisible portion of your community's history visible once again. Thank you. All right, again, I'm John Smoley, a city planner with the city of Minneapolis. And I'm wondering if uh, this is happening in your community. Despite the best efforts of architects, archaeologists, and state historic preservation officers, 
Are you still seeing inappropriate alterations to buildings? Here's an unfortunate uh, porch infill and kind of an awkward commercial addition on what's otherwise a very nice turn-of-the-century residence. Are you seeing clutter in your streetscape? Maybe even in the heart of your historic district, a billboard advertising the historical authenticity of some other community. That one made me mad when I saw that. <laughs> I almost entered this into the community's uh, calendar. They were trying to do a calendar, but I thought that, was, that kind of irony wouldn't really be appreciated. So, um, Are you seeing country houses being moved so strip malls can be built? How about construction of out-of-character buildings? Regardless of how progressive the architecture may be, are you seeing things that you feel don't really fit in with your community's historic character? If you are, maybe you want to talk to your city planner. We're kind of powerful people, or at least we like to think of ourselves that way. We manage your zoning code, and now the zoning code does focus upon separating incompatible uses, such as uh, residential subdivisions and garbage dumps. You don't really want them right next to each other like this. Uh, and historic preservation's focus, of course, is really preserving designs, not uses. Uh, but zoning codes do have some limited design tools that you can occasionally harness. But if you're starting to see untoward alterations uh, in development in your community, sometimes you need something more formal, like an actual local historic preservation program. And you're going to have to ask for that, because your city planner and planning's goal, city planning's goal in general, is really focused upon sustainable, building sustainable communities, good urban design. Preservation, heritage can be a component of that, but it's not a mandatory component in most communities. So it's something that community members really have to ask for. I should first note that most communities have city planners, but if you haven't seen yours, you might have to check your county government, uh, check with your county government if you're located in a rural area. And they are known by a variety of terms. Look for urban planners, regional land use, even community planners, and check your zoning services section, your building uh, administration department, maybe development review or environmental review divisions also. There are a variety of terms. You won't find them in your historical society. Historical societies are crucial to good preservation programs, and they were really the center of preservation programs, local preservation programs, until the last 30 to 40 years when you started to see more federal laws and state laws enable local communities to develop their own local preservation programs, legally mandated preservation programs. As you know, historical societies can't pass laws. Cities and towns can. So they really became, the cities and towns, those local governments became the centers of preservation programs over the course of the past 30 to 40 years. Let me give you an example of how one community brought historic preservation to its aid. Elk Grove, California was a sleepy agricultural town, a day's stagecoach ride outside of Sacramento on the Monterey Trail. Think uh, mid-19th century, California gold rush days, and a hotel as the linchpin of your community. I should note, too, that all the graphics in this presentation uh, are from El Grove, except for that Onion article, which I just could not live without. I love that one. Um, so El Grove, back to El Grove. It stayed sleepy for a long time. Here it is in 1937, the center of the community. And here it is in 2006. Times changed. 
It was named the fastest growing mid-sized city in America, actually, in 2005. And you can tell from the population growth that it really exploded. Now, I chose to focus on Elk Grove because I think of it as really the stereotypical, small, agricultural-based American town that then turned into the stereotypical, booming, uh, suburban-style community. And I think if you consider all the communities in our country, um, if you take these two particular types, they probably represent the majority of communities in our nation. And also, I think a lot of times people feel that those communities don't really have a lot of heritage worth preserving. And that's really unfortunate because I think often these communities have the most to lose as development threatens a high percentage of their historic properties. In terms of sheer numbers, it may not be great, but in terms of percentages, it can often be very high for communities experiencing significant development. Additionally, rapidly expanding communities really need a sense of heritage to help bring people of diverse backgrounds together, and not just culturally diverse, but also geographically diverse. As you've known, anytime you moved into a new community and started to learn a little bit about the community's history. The origins of Elk Grove's uh, preservation program are really, really go back to the Historical Society's foundation or founding in the 1960s. And the Historical Society really started, like a lot of people did back in the 60s, with some consciousness raising, public education, trying to convince people of the value of their community's heritage, that history actually happened there, as is the column, uh, newspaper column, of a local school teacher who assigned students local preservation projects and local historical research projects, and then got the newspaper to publish their results. For people who weren't reading newspapers, younger students, the Historical Society actually picked up and moved in a school built in 1870 to a one-room schoolhouse and preserved it and started interpreting it for um, uh, schools, uh, field trips. They moved from there into forming economic alliances the Historical Society um, really actually embarked upon a program of uh, heritage tourism by reconstructing a hotel, um, that original hotel I mentioned that was unfortunately demolished for a freeway in 1957. City planning could do that to you too. So um, I have to throw that caveat in there. They reconstructed it. Here it is in 2003. It looks very nice. They also created a heritage park by moving other buildings onto their site having interpretive programs on those, on the, uh, in those buildings and on that site that really tried to help people appreciate their heritage. A business association formed, the Old Town Foundation, in 1979. And it didn't just include merchants trying to keep the businesses up and compete with malls uh, in suburbs. What this was really dedicated to was trying to improve the historic character of their old town. And it included not only merchants, but also um, local remodeling professionals and uh, material suppliers. So it was a very um, mutually beneficial relationship. And that foundation managed to hire a historical consultant who in 1988 got their little Main Street section listed in the National Register of Historic Places. This nomination helped to demonstrate to not only residents but also county planners, because it was unincorporated at the time, demonstrate to county planners that this community had heritage worth preserving. It was worthy of a historic preservation program. And in 1991, they took some initial steps. City planners got involved, took some initial steps to create a conservation district or special planning area in and around this historic district. This was designed to conserve the visual character of the area. It's not as strict as a historic district designation uh, and a formal preservation program might bring, um, but it does help conserve visual character and is a great first step. Uh, for a preservation, for some formal preservation guidelines uh, designed to limit changes to buildings, historic buildings. 
In 2000, the Historical Society, that business foundation, the Old Town Elk Grove Foundation, and community leaders petitioned the county to incorporate in an effort to have greater control over land use decisions. They were seeing lots of new development in their community. They were very concerned, and they wanted to make sure heritage was incorporated into their planning for the future, which you can see. They even incorporated, uh, uh, came up with a new logo and incorporated a tagline for their city that indicated their reliance upon heritage as they planned for the future. In 2003, they developed the constitution of a community's planning effort, the Comprehensive Plan, which included a historic preservation chapter and an environmental impact report. Let's take a closer look at that because, as you can see here, this really brought about a host of preservation program accomplishments. Comprehensive plans are a community's development policies. By development, we're talking about development of land. And by policies, we're talking about rules of thumb, not laws. To have a good preservation program, you still need laws, like a historic preservation ordinance. But those laws have to comply with your comprehensive plan in much the same way that federal laws can't be unconstitutional. They have to comply with the Constitution. Comprehensive plans are updated periodically, but by that I mean they're actually rewritten. Here in the seven-county metro area, once every 10 years. Imagine rewriting the state's constitution once every 10 years. You can make some major changes, major gains for, in this case, historic preservation. Because um, comprehensive plans don't necessarily need to include historic preservation chapters. Towns and cities don't even need to have, always, in all cases, um, comprehensive plans. So I'd encourage you to request your community to develop a comprehensive plan with a historic preservation chapter. Because as you can see, the as you'll see, the scope of change that it can bring about is really quite significant. Comprehensive plan development is also a good uh, example of a project to focus upon because it's really similar to the way land use applications are processed in communities. If you hear about some new building that's going up in your community, the review process, and you're familiar with that sort of review process, comprehensive plan development, that review process and that whole uh, development process is quite similar. We start by noticing these sorts of projects posting them on a bulletin board outside City Hall often, always posting them in some kind of newspaper of record, and now, nowadays usually posting them online in some specific place of your city's or community's website. So take a look. Look for those notices. Then we move into data collection. This involves city planners doing research, consulting with architects, archaeologists, state historic preservation office representatives, and most importantly, citizens in the community, like yourselves, who present your ideas for what should be considered a historic property, what concerns you have, both existing and future concerns about those properties, and how you'd like to see those properties protected in the future and how they are protected now, if there are any sort of protections. The plan gets formulated, it gets drafted, and we turn back to members of the public and ask for comments on that. Did we miss anything? Would you like to see anything changed? Should we add things? Environmental review occurs, as it does with all major development projects. Environmental reviews are required by law when certain development impacts are met or thresholds are exceeded. Agencies have to take into account the effects of their actions or the actions they authorize on historic properties and historic properties in, I'm sorry, the, on, on the environment. Um, and the environment includes historic properties. These environmental reviews are noticed also. So pay close attention when those notices are coming out. This is another very easy way for you to bring preservation to your community by commenting on these environmental reviews. 
Formal adoption means the plan actually gets approved, typically by a city council or county board of commissioners. Participate in those public meetings also. Hopefully by that time, all your concerns have been addressed. And you can stand up and say that you think your city planners are fantastic and they've done a great job and you recommend adoption of the plan. But if not, you still you want to make your voice uh, heard. So what does a typical comprehensive plan historic preservation chapter look like? Well, in Elk Grove's case, it's, it's really succinct, three pages. It lays out some very general goals and policies. The most important part are the action items that they came up with here. Because these action items commit your community to doing certain things, to building certain preservation program components or taking certain actions. In Elk Grove's case, their comprehensive plan committed them to adopting a historic preservation ordinance and establishing an HPC, which they did in 2007. Then they developed a historic resource inventory. Actually, that's ongoing. They have a good context statement developed uh, to provide a basis for judgments about what's historic and what is not. And they committed to using grants for historic preservation. They did in 2003 and 2005, won a federal award for it, actually, um, by providing infrastructure and pedestrian improvements through the heart of their historic district. It seems fairly simple. Um, and in some ways it is. Uh, when you get into the process, it gets a little more complex. Um, but I would really encourage you to think about um, getting involved with uh, comprehensive plan development, updates in your community, environmental reviews, development review of land use applications in general, because these are very easy ways you can interact with your city planners, your elected officials, and let them know that you want her heritage preservation in your community. Well, this concludes our presentation. We hope you've received a sound introduction to preservation. Uh, have a decent understanding of the major professional disciplines involved in preservation and, and hopefully have a few ideas as to how you might bring preservation to your community. We'd love to hear from you now, hear your questions that you might have for us. And again, we are being recorded and we have a volunteer in back who will be walking around with a microphone. If you wouldn't mind, just raise your hand. She'll come over to you, provide you with a microphone, speak clearly into that so that attendees here as well as future listeners can benefit from your insights. Yes, just a comment and a, and a question. Uh, Michelle, I think you made a comment about uh, contact the uh, state archaeologist or the SHPO uh, archaeologist. Uh, one cautionary note is that uh, they'll be very reticent. They, they won't readily provide that information because that's restricted information to prevent uh, archaeological uh, artifact collectors and people going out to those sites. So unless you're affiliated with some sort of governmental entity and, and you can justify and explain your reason for acquiring that information, it, they're just not going to give you that information. Right, I just want right. to and I'm glad, I'm glad you brought that up, yes. Yeah. Um, and even in those, like, the interpretive panels that we made, it, we kept things general. Site protection is obviously a, a major issue um, and one that we, we struggle with quite a bit. It's that fine line between uh, people, if people know where the resources are in their community, then they're more likely to protect them. Um, but also, yes, what people don't know is, is also protected by that. Um, and I, I, would, I was going on the assumption that a lot of people here are on representing uh, some as aspect of their communities, um, organizations or cities or, or whatever. But yes, it, they're not, they are going to, you're going to have to have some reason for asking for that information. Right. Uh, and uh, there was a comment made, you have 42 CLGs in the state. 
and I was just curious about what the level of competency and training was for the CLGs and does the SHPO provide any kind of standardized training or does it vary widely among the CLGs in the state? Our CLG coordinator is here, but I won't ask him to <laughs> stand up. Um, there, we our office did develop. There, are, there are the f the federal standards that come from the Park Service that are passed then through to us. We did develop a, a manual for Minnesota that does have it's a it's a manual that all that outlines annual reports, um, which that that are sent to our office every year, which tells us what the commission members are, what they've reviewed. Um, so we have regular those reports that we review all local designations actually go through our office also for review and comment before they are locally designated it's part of the review process um, Mike our staff person for the state goes out to CLG communities all the time um, we'll meet with commissions we also have this this is actually the track of our yearly conference that's we're, that we're joining with the ASLH this year so participation in the yearly conference is also part of that so it's not again nitpicking on every little thing the communities do but they just have to meet the basic standards and we provide as much education and support as possible okay and and then you talked about f uh, eligibility for federal grants and mm -hmm. i assume that's part of your 10 percent pass through from right. the nps hpf funds mm -hmm. but with 42 CLGs, is there any other grant monies that you provide them? Because that, that's, I mean, that, I guess my question is, what does that equate to in terms of real actual dollars yeah, to each of these CLGs? It doesn't go very far, and I guess Mike would probably have the number, but before Mike talks about that, we also, or if he could just yell out the number. <laughs> what do we typically have in recent years for CLG grant pot every year? 100000 100000 So... Michelle posted our clean water and uh, legacy amendment in Minnesota. We have that amendment that can actually be used. So we have special grant projects through our Minnesota Historical Society Grants Office, a lot of which are used for preservation projects, CLGs, HPCs, owners of historic properties. You can use them for bricks and mortar, same kinds of CLG projects that are typically done which are survey inventory public education projects we so we do we are lucky very lucky in the state that we have a lot more than hundred thousand dollars for that through that grant program there's a lot a couple million a every biennium I think typically it's that that of course then all the museum people everybody's sort of sharing that but historic preservation is a very large chunk of those grant projects. My question is, um, how do you know if something's damaging to a site um, for archaeology? We have the Chirp Mine in Grand Metal. Mm -hmm. And do you worry about hunters going in there and using the site as a hunting ground? Um, I, I haven't been to Grand Meadow. I'm obviously familiar with the material that comes out of it. It's a very important uh, uh, lithic procurement site in Minnesota. Um, I wouldn't. People using an area is usually not detrimental unless they're uh, actively excavating or, um, I don't know, in the case of hunt, hunters, usually are. are minimal effect to a to an archaeological site um, if you do have concerns again 
Um, it depends on the land ownership. If it's private, if it's privately owned, then it's it's private. You know, it's privately owned. They can do whatever they want on their property. If it's if it's public land, then it's an, it's another issue. Okay, it's the Archaeology Conservancy that owns it, and they're based uh, Ohio or mm -hmm. further down. Um, another time, I'd been invited to uh, Arrowhead show in Rochester, and it was overheard from some of the collectors there that they were going out to the chert mine to dig. Mm. And um, luckily we had mentioned that um, it was privately owned and protected, so that may have deterred some, but it's there's no signage or anything to protect that. I, I would contact the Conservancy about your concerns. They would, as, as the owners, they would be the ones to, to take any steps towards protecting it further. Um, one more question. Um, I've had uh, research requests from archaeologists or from other institutions that request archaeological finds information for our county. I don't have all that information. So do they usually start with the state level first to find those? Y yeah, if they're, if they're a consultant, um, usually they'd be contacting the, the County Historical Society. Yeah, we, we usually start with the State Historic Preservation Office and the State Archaeology Office and their records. But sometimes counties have information uh, about those uh, sort of ephemeral sites, those lo you know, local homes, you know, hist early homesteads and things like that that um, just aren't recorded yet. And so it's more the, uh, do you have any hints about, you know, something that might be in our project area that we just, there's no other way for us to learn about it, so... Hi, thanks. For, this has just been so interesting and, and informative. Um, I'm from Mantraville, Minnesota, which is about an hour and 20 minutes due south of here, if you just went like the crow flies. And um, our 12-block um, center in the middle of Mantraville, which is 1,100 people, is in the historic National Register of Historic Places. My question is, you know, I'm president of the Mantraville Restoration Association, which is a nonprofit that has been involved with maintaining that area and kind of being the watchdog. It's looking like we're going to have to move to the next level, which is developing a historic preservation committee. I mean, it's just becoming much more obvious that we have to do that. My question to the panel is this. Um, how do we go about um, encouraging, um, helping not only the commercial district, but there are homes that are privately owned within the historic district. We have fabulous homes. And how do we go about keeping them? We just had a building just recently that's going to have to come down because it was let go so long that it just was not salvageable. We don't, and that's going to happen more and more frequently, and not just in our community, but in others also. So how do we go about not having that happen again? Kind of a planning question. <laughs> I I think a local preservation program is a great step, developing a heritage preservation ordinance or historic preservation ordinance and a comprehensive plan chapter, if Manterville has something like that. Um, but also, you know, bringing with that some genuine economic incentives for properties that have been designated, properties whose owners have stepped up and said, okay, I'm willing to have some additional development restrictions on my property. Because remember, we're talking about making sure those properties on, aren't altered um, in a way that uh, prevents them from communicating their historical significance. So communities can develop their own economic incentives. Um, 
in the way that the state has developed economic incentives for uh, properties that meet certain thresholds uh, to attain tax credits, the way the federal government's done the same, um, and the way the state disperses funds to historical societies and projects through its legacy amendment. So I definitely encourage you to explore economic incentives. Talk to your elected officials. Talk to your city planners. What about some of the buildings that have already been, like the one, that horrible one that you showed? We have two. One used to be a Catholic church. It's now a senior center that somewhere along the line got vinyl-sided. <laughs> And then we have another one that's sitting there vacant that's kind of, you kind of see it almost falling apart around your ears. And it's like in foreclosure, and da, 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 but it's still, it's still named on the register. How do you make that them come up to code? Or is it, what kind of teeth do you have about that? I mean, we as, an, as a nonprofit don't, so that's why the commission is starting to sound a little bit more obvious. Yeah, the, the local designation would give you the teeth that you need to be able to... Um, support the your desires for historic preservation in your community um, and there are a lot of those I should mention we are um, the session is over we are willing to you know stay and keep answering questions but if you need to go and I don't it, there isn't a session in here after us is there well, there's a break, there's a break? Uh, 45 minutes or so. okay all right so if you're done you can go but you can <laughs> we'll stay, we'll, we'll stay. Um, the Reusing buildings like that, I mean, really, I think the best way to keep um, keep your historic buildings is to find a use for them, which really takes a lot of community involvement in finding some way of inserting um, development, and not development as in a lot of changes, but finding a sympathetic use to those empty or um, endangered buildings. And that's really probably the best way to be able to save those buildings. And, the, and a commission probably would be the, or heritage preservation would probably be the best way to be able to do that? Well, the or just community commission would give you the teeth to say, you can't tear that down. Um, although that doesn't always work that way. Um, but having the community involvement and community interest in finding new uses for those buildings is probably the best grassroots um, effort that you can do to, to keep them vital. Um, I'm Lynn from Winona and uh, I guess my um, question is, is quite like the one from Mantraville. We have a preservation commission and we're lucky to have the city planner on our commission and we have our local historic areas but people will come to us and get a building permit. Uh, members of our group go out for a certificate of appropriateness and we tell them this and this and this and they go ahead and do what they want to anyway. So I mean teeth are there but you know, it, uh, what is the recourse in a situation like that? It all depends upon your local laws and, you know, your, the, quite frankly, the political will of your elected officials. Uh, we've seen some pretty egregious changes to historic properties in communities I've worked in, even in Minneapolis. And um, you have to have code enforcement officials that are willing to go out there and start fining property owners who are not complying with your laws. You have to have elected officials who are willing to back them up as well. If a, and the reason I say that is because if a preservation action of the city becomes unpopular enough, 
it can cause some people to vote differently in elections. So there is, as much as we say, well, you just pass the right laws, have the right economic incentives, and you're good to go, there is a large amount of community consensus that needs to be gained and maintained in these preservation efforts for your community to have a successful program. So I would encourage you to talk with those community leaders. Have your preservation commissioners do the same thing. Talk with the property owners. Encourage them. Um, talk to your planners and architects and archaeologists and state representatives and try and find some funding sources that might help them out. But it does take some effort. It's not just a, a, a very easy, easy thing to do in all instances. Well, unless anyone has any further questions, I will thank you all. And again, we can uh, answer any questions you may have. If you want to come up here, grab a card, say hi.